You know, we talk a lot about um, blood diamonds in, in Africa and, and some people have talked about uh, blood phosphates in this region. It is one of the basic building blocks of um, all life and, and most people aren't aware that, you know, we, we know about hydrogen and oxygen and, and carbon but we don't think about phosphorus but it is also in our DNA, it's in our cell walls, it's responsible for energy transport into the brain. So it's essential for um, not just animals uh, but also for plants to grow and without phosphorus there would be no food on this earth. This is Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today on the show, it's one of the biggest environmental challenges of our time, but no one seems to be talking about it. And that's because a lot of us don't actually know that much about it, let alone anything. Phosphorus. Dana Cordell is from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney, and has spent the past decade or so researching phosphorus, what it is, what it does, why it's so important, and also how quickly we're running out of it. The story of phosphorus, or more our relationship with it, is a complicated one. And throughout this episode, you might find yourself asking more questions than we have answers to. But that's what Dana says makes this issue so interesting. Why do you think most people don't know about it? Do you think phosphorus isn't kind of like sexy enough? <laughs> well, I think phosphorus is, is sexy <laughs> enough. But I guess, you know, you don't, you don't see phosphorus on a daily basis. I mean, with water, it, it comes out of our taps, you know, in our showers uh, every day. And we see it sort of in our rivers and lakes and oceans. And with oil, you know, many people have a, drive a car and they know that they require petrol to put into that car to make it go or, or for other um, uses. But we don't generally, as a community, ever see phosphorus in its use. But if you talk to any farmer, they will know that you cannot grow crops without phosphorus. So they certainly um, do know that. And really, it was only until 2008 when there was a price spike of phosphate fertilisers and other commodities at the time. And so phosphate prices spiked 800%. And really, I think that was a wake-up call to suddenly put phosphorus on the agenda. It's still not up there with you know, water sustainability or climate change, um, but it needs to be because it is one of the emerging global sustainability challenges of our time, ensuring that we have enough phosphorus to grow food into the future. And so what happened in 2008 was farmers either couldn't afford those fertilisers or they weren't available. So it really showed us that even a short-term disruption in the price or supply of phosphate can have huge ramifications for our global food systems. And there was certainly... Um, responses to that 2008 crisis in, in all parts of the world. There were farmer riots and even some suicides, you know, in India and Haiti and even in, in Australia there was a Senate inquiry into what was going on. Why can't Australian farmers um, access phosphate fertilisers? Right. So it has, it's starting to get onto the agenda. How in the past decade have we seen, have we seen that number come back down? Is it more mm. kind of like an okay market at the moment? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So um, after that uh, phosphate price spike, 2008, the price did start to come down a little bit, but it was still around maybe three to four times 
the price from the pre-2008 spike. Um, And it's come down a little further, but it's likely to go up again because we know that the world's remaining phosphate rock and the quality of that rock is in decline, which means prices are going to go up gradually in the long term. And I think we can also expect some future price spikes like we saw in 2008, but we just don't know when that will happen because... What happened in 2008 was we know that in 2007 the US changed their energy policy um, and had a new ethanol policy and that was around first generation biofuels and we know now that first generation biofuels, so growing those um, fast growing crops and using them as an energy source isn't necessarily the most um, efficient way to produce bioenergy and one thing that they require to grow because they're crops is phosphorus fertilisers. So because of that single policy change in the US we saw a global spike in the demand for phosphate fertilisers. And to bring a new phosphate mine online doesn't take a year or two years. It can take up to a decade or two. So um, there was a lag time in that sort of supply and demand happening. And because there's only a few phosphate producers in the world, China, who's one of the biggest um, annual producers of phosphate rock, realised that they wanted to keep their phosphate supplies for domestic food production. So they actually imposed a 135% export tariff on their phosphate rock. So overnight, there was a a huge halt in the availability of um, of phosphate rock on the global market. And Australia and many other countries are dependent on that rock from China. Where are we mining phosphate rock today? Well, interestingly, there's only um, a handful of countries where most of the world's phosphate rock comes from. So actually... Five countries control 90% of the world's remaining high-quality phosphate rock, and Morocco alone controls three-quarters of that amount. So that's actually quite concerning when you think about it because it is a resource, as I mentioned earlier, that every farmer, every country relies on. Why does Morocco control three-quarters of it? Well, that's partly because of geology. So phosphate rock takes about 10 to 100 millions of years to form. It came from the seabed, from dead aquatic life and and shells, um, and due to tectonic uplift, eventually ended up on land and bedrock and and mountains. Um, So a lot of that happens to be in northern Africa and the Middle East. So there's also a lot in um, in Syria and Algeria and Jordan, and then other deposits around um, China. But Morocco's control of phosphate rock is a little bit complicated because they also control the rock that's in um, the territory of Western Sahara. And there's quite a vigorous debate around the ownership. It's very contentious around the ownership of that territory of Western Sahara because um, the UN condemns the control of that region by Morocco and they, they believe that the people of Western Sahara have rights to their own determination to control their region and also the phosphate rock that exists there. But at the moment, Morocco is controlling that and gains a lot of uh, financial benefit from the sale of the phosphate in the mines in that region as well. Why did the UN condemn that? Um, Because it's actually considered by many as an illegal occupation. So Western Sahara is the last colony of Africa, you could say. And so it's not recognised by any other country within Africa. And and what we've actually seen is that many other countries or companies who have traded with Morocco for the rock in Western Sahara have now divested in that because they understand that to be an issue of corporate social responsibility and, and there's human rights concerns and conflicts in the region. So... 
um, it's definitely something that that we should consider avoiding because what it means is that even here in Australia, the food that we eat every day likely has some phosphate rock that came from Western Sahara. So it means we're knowingly or unknowingly supporting this um, illegal occupation in Western Sahara. You know, we talk a lot about um, blood diamonds in in Africa and and some people have talked about uh, blood phosphates in this region. How much longer... Like, can they hold that percentage if they continue to, you know, mine it and deplete the resource? Well, I mean, that's a really great question and a question that a lot of people are asking because there's actually a lot of uncertainty and lack of transparency around how much phosphate uh, reserves are in each country because the only publicly available data is compiled by the US Geological Survey and that's the same for whether it's oil or copper or whatnot. But that actually relies on each individual country or companies self-reporting how much they have. So, for example, when um, China joined the, the WTO, their reported you know, phosphate doubled overnight. So we don't have a sense of the accuracy of um, these numbers that are coming through, and we're not able to compare them because to report on the tonnages of phosphate rock, it's not just the rock, it's the high-quality, technically and economically feasible rock. So what, what does that mean to different companies or countries? It's quite different. So in a sense, we're potentially comparing apples and oranges, and we don't have a very reliable, secure sense of, of the amount of phosphate rock in any country. And even in Australia, we can't even know that total amount. In Australia, our food or agricultural setup might interact differently with phosphorus than somewhere else around mm. the globe. How does phosphorus interplay in our food security here? Mm. Well, that's a really interesting question because in Australia, we like to think of ourselves as not only a food secure nation, but we're the food bowl of, of the region. We feed, you know, 60 million people, almost three times our population. But that is actually relying on phosphorus from external or overseas sources. And if you actually go back a bit, you find out that, you know, we talk about Australia being built from the sheep's back. But actually, Australia was also built from the phosphate deposits in Nauru. So what happened was phosphate was um, discovered in the South Pacific on Nauru and a bunch of other islands in the region. And together with Britain and New Zealand and under the British Phosphate Commission, we mined four-fifths of the interior of Nauru removed the entire population to other neighbouring islands and when that was no longer financially viable moved the population back they had received royalties from that phosphate uh, mining but those royalties weren't managed um, appropriately and their entire economy collapsed and this is indeed one of the reasons why Nauru has had to take uh, refugees and other things from Australia because of that sort of historical relationship wow, um, I didn't know that it's, it's a fascinating story but for Australia so our um, agricultural bounty was really initially built from the, the phosphate that was on Nauru and once that essentially dried up we looked to um, further ashore and have been importing from Morocco and, and China and other places since. And so although as I mentioned we're a net food producer in Australia but we're a net um, phosphate importer and right. despite being quite a small country we are the world's fifth largest importer of phosphate which might be surprising to many and that's because we've invested in very phosphorus intensive foods and agricultural commodities like 
beef and wheat and um, dairy. And the other problem there is we're producing those commodities that require a lot of phosphate, you know, fertilisers and inputs, and then we're literally shipping that off our shores in in exports. And so that means all the phosphorus um, embodied in those products is going with them. So we can't even recover it in the in the food waste or the you know manure of those animals and the live exports, for example, um, to recirculate it and, and and replenish our soils in Australia so that we can keep producing food. Coming up. How our poo could help solve our phosphorus problem. People poo or animal poo or both? Both, both. An excess of of excreta of of all kinds, <laughs> <laughs> big and small. Do we have any ways to reclaim any of that phosphorus, or have we looked to other methods here in Australia? What's really important here is that um, we can't import solutions from other countries, and you know, in, in any context, it's often very tempting just to see something that's working overseas and try and import that here. And, and an example of that in the phosphate context is Europe is pushing ahead with looking at extracting phosphorus from wastewater and human excreta and manure because they actually have an abundance of poo in Europe, <laughs> and they can't put it anywhere. So they have very strict environmental regulations, so they can't discharge that effluent into. Um, into their lakes and, and rivers because it will cause pollution. They can't spread it on the land because there's too much of it, too much manure and, and, and not enough um, land to, to absorb all of that phosphorus and, and, and excreta. People poo or animal poo or both? Both, both. An excess of, of excreta of, of all kinds, <laughs> <laughs> big and small. Um, and... Europe also takes this phosphorus scarcity situation quite seriously and they're almost entirely dependent on phosphate imports um, into the European Union um, to produce their food and so that is an issue of um, regional security. So they do want to invest in renewable fertilisers, so renewable phosphate that's been extracted from you know animal poo or manure or human excreta and wastewater and create a viable market in that sense. That is a really good approach for Europe to be taking because of that abundance of the phosphorus in in the excreta. But if you try and transplant that into Australia, it's a very different story because I mentioned earlier around our trade and export of agricultural commodities and the fate of phosphate. And what that actually means is that even if we were to recover 100% of the phosphorus in wastewater in Australia, that would only represent about 3 to 5% of Australia's phosphate fertiliser demand. Right. Because all of that, the food that we're producing in Australia is consumed overseas, so it's excreted overseas and ends up in the wastewater treatment plants in, in Asia and, and Europe and whatnot. So we need to think about different opportunities here in Australia. But what we can do is, um, I think, zoom down to the, the city scale because... Both globally and in Australia, you know, there's more people living in urban areas than rural areas today, but Australia has an even more extreme case. So around 90% of our population are living in coastal cities. And what that does is it concentrates people and hence the demand for food, but it also concentrates the wastes that are coming out of our bodies or the food waste or, or other parts. And we've actually calculated, for example, for Sydney, that there's around seven to eight times more phosphorus in organic waste, such as human excreta or even poultry manure in the local farms and, and food waste, than there is demand from agriculture for use as a fertiliser. So if you think about that, it could mean that cities could become the next renewable phosphate fertiliser factories for Australia and reduce our dependence on importing phosphate from um, potentially geopolitically risky areas. 
you'd mentioned a number of countries divesting from Morocco in terms of not importing their phosphorus, but it took Australia some time to divest from that. Why? Yes, Australia as an Australian companies probably have a maybe a different sense of corporate social responsibility to say some of the Scandinavian firms because you had the the big you know Norwegian pension funds and the big Danish and Swedish banks um, divest immediately as soon as they understood what was happening because their shareholders would not want to participate in that um, what they saw as an unethical practice. Um, there has been a lot of pressure from groups to continue to look at diverting and divesting away from that. Um, One of the concerns some of the Australian firms have had is that because of the quality of our phosphate rock, we really need that Moroccan rock to blend with our own to get the good quality that we need in Australia. That certainly has been a concern. But I would argue there's, you know, we need to think about the medium and longer term here and working with the fertiliser industry to invest in renewable fertilisers and not just, you know, think more broadly around the sources of phosphorus, not just coming from traditional phosphate rock sources because, you know, five or ten years ago there was a more simplified understanding of the solutions as recycle it from human excreta or be more efficient on farm and now we have this more nuanced sense just just as long as it's really clear that we're losing 80% of phosphorus in the whole phosphorus food supply chain from mine to field to fork and that means that there are opportunities to be more efficient with the way we use phosphorus not just on farm but in that whole value chain. So in the way we mine phosphate, we can reduce the losses. In the way we produce fertilisers, it can be much more efficient, new practices and technologies. When you produce um, these high-analysis fertilisers, for every tonne of phosphate um, fertiliser you get, you produce five tonnes of a byproduct, which is actually radioactive because that's where all the thorium and uranium goes. And because it's radioactive, you can't really reuse this byproduct. It's called phosphogypsum. How big are these mounds of <laughs> phosphate byproducts? They can be quite large. I mean, as I said, because you get five tons of waste by byproduct for tons. every one ton. Exactly, and they're very low in phosphorus concentration. So, where are the biggest um, opportunities to improve the efficiency in the system? You know, where are the lowest hanging fruits? Um, where can we recover phosphorus from? So it's not just from human excreta, it's from any organic waste source. It could be the crop residues and husks on farm. It could be um, yeah, the food waste. And I think as the price of phosphate goes up and it becomes more valuable and there's more pressure on the industry to be more clean and green, I think we will see an increase in improved practices and more efficient phosphate mining. And people would definitely want to avoid another spike. This is true. We would definitely want to avoid another spike because that's will have similar catastrophic implications when we already have a food security challenge on our hands with with a growing population. We definitely do not need another fertiliser price spike that will impact adversely on our food systems globally. Dana Cordell, Research Director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's all we have time for today on Think Sustainability. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe. We're available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Sustainability. This show is made possible with the support of the University of Technology, Sydney and to SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe and I'll catch you next time. Music